Morning, family. Good job, Mabatu. Won't give Mabatu a good round of applause. I know the ladies are going to have a great time that uh, Saturday morning. Natasha's all geared up and ready. She'll be with you uh, on that day also and be sharing some of, some of that day with you. Uh, she'll be sharing, so it'll be a great time together. In the announcements, you also heard about two of our uh, uh, courses that we present here at the church, and I just want to make sure that you, that you distinguish between the two and know what they're about. For us as a church, we understand that Jesus said our job is to make disciples. So we do different courses, not just because we do courses, but because it's all part of our discipleship journey. And uh, therefore, when we talk about becoming a member of this church, it's not about membership, and, but that we want to have numbers or anything. It's so that we know that we're walking a journey of discipleship with people. So therefore, to become a member of this church, you begin with a discipleship training course that we do called Life Changes. And it's exactly what the course does, talks about. It's a time where you spend with our pastoral team for about four weeks, and, and they give you some of the basics of what it means to be a disciple and how we view that as a church so that you can join us in the journey and go with us from that place of agreement. One of the subsequent courses we then do is the, is the Life Training School, or LTS, as we often refer to it. And that course is de designed to be a, a deeper look into the unconditional love of God. And it's a, a great thing, and I'm firmly of the belief that every person should not only do the life changes as be to become a member of our community, but really at some point do the life training school, and it takes you so much deeper into who God's love is, and I know we've got the next one coming up on the 30th of July, and if you haven't done an LTS, then please go and do an LTS, but the LTS is not part of our membership process. That's something that is open to everybody, but really worthwhile, but if you want to become part of this community and say, this is my home church, then do a, a life changes with our pastoral team, and uh, it'll start you off on our on the journey with us in a great way. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. We are coming to the end of uh, our previous series. I'll actually be finishing our series on a body of heroes. And uh, I think we've had a great time and have had a lot of fun in just looking at some of the characters of the scripture so that it strengthens with each in of us, each of us, this idea that that to build the story of the gospel, it takes many people, not just a few heroes, but that we are all heroes. And even in this community, Hatfield Christian Church, we, the, the strength of this church is in that every one of us takes our place and lives our calling and follows after the Lord Jesus and loves Him and love one another and love the world that we are in. And uh, today I'm going to finish with that series. And then next Sunday, we're starting with a whole new series, but we'll tell you about that for uh, next Sunday for the rest of the year. And please join us for that. It's going to be great and very exciting. We've worked very hard on that series, and we've got great creativity, and, and uh, you don't want to miss out on that. But this morning, I uh, want to, as I said, finish and talk with, uh, about heroes of faith. And uh, the, 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 the heart's desire I felt from the Lord for this morning is really for all of us to stir our faith a little bit and to stir our expectation in the kingdom. So, so that's what I'm going to try and do. So if, if you're still sitting still at the end of the day, then I've not done my job well. So I'm going to stir you up a little bit this morning. So are you ready to be stirred? Yep. Sit on the front of your seat and let's get stirred up. Now, I've been spending a bit of time in the book of Mark, in the gospel of Mark, as I've been preparing for our new series that's coming up, and just reading a lot of the gospel stories. And, uh, and you know what the gospel writers did? What their task was, was to introduce us to Jesus, and to make a case that Jesus wasn't just a great guy, but that He actually was the Son of God. So when they accumulated the stories and the accounts, 
and started writing the Gospels, which they did years after Christ died. They reflected back and they realized that, you know, the disciples were going to die and they, they, with them they didn't want the stories to die. So they started writing down, uh, the, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they started writing down that which they, that they could remember and which they could corroborate and that which they felt really brought some basic ideas about who this Jesus was that they brought across to us. And Mark did a particularly good job of that also in his Christology as he developed the doctrine of who Christ is to convince us that Christ was the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, I have a good friend here this morning, Gerben. Where's Gerben? Oh, Gerben moved. He came and sat right here. I want to introduce you to Gerben. Gerben, why don't you come and join me on stage? This is the illustration. It's not really about Gerben, but He's a great guy, so, you know. <laughs> now, I've had the privilege of knowing, having known Gerben for many, many years. Gerben and Mika, as many of you know, um, they come from Holland, and, you know, we love them for that and everything, and, and it's, it's been great to get to know, but over the last two years, as we've been working much closer together, Gerben is on our executive team, really got to know him a lot better and, and really appreciate him, and I, I want to tell you that if you haven't had the opportunity to spend a bit of time with Gerben, and if you can catch him, then spend time with him. He's a great guy. How many of you know Gerben here this morning, have spent a bit of time with Gerben? You are a blessed people. Now, I notice the further back it gets into the room, the less people have actually spent time with Gerben. Now, he was service directed this morning, so you saw him. He, there's so much to him. He's a great guy. Unfortunately, he supports Holland football because he was born there, and that's a bit of a downer at this point in time. But if you get the opportunity, spend time with Gerben. He's a great guy. I've gotten to know him, and I would love it if you could get to know him a little bit. And Perhaps there's certain challenges that you, you, you may experience. There's some things in your life that Gerben is the right person to speak to that'll help you with those things. Now, I don't want his diary to fill up all of a sudden. But what am I doing this morning? I've gotten to know somebody. And I'm convinced of the character and the value and the contribution of somebody. And I am introducing them to you. I am busy laying a foundation to say, if you could, it would be great if you could also get to know this person. And that's Gerben. So when you give Gerben a good round of applause, you can go sit down. Thank you, Gerben. And that's exactly what Mark and the other writers of the Gospels were doing. They met Jesus. They got to spend time with Jesus. They saw the most amazing things. They got convinced about who Jesus was. And so they, just, they wrote the record of the Scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they introduced Jesus to us. And they want us to know that Jesus isn't just a great guy. He isn't just some historical figure that you need to pay attention to, that it's good that you have some knowledge of Him and who He was. He was the Son of God. They are utterly convinced of that fact. And they want to convince you. Not only with an argument, but with a description. And they tell the stories of Christ. And in most of the Gospels, they, they chose particular stories. Most of the Gospel stories were particularly chosen to bring across to us different facets and descriptions that, that they believe if we see all of that together, we wouldn't come to any other conclusion than Jesus was the Christ. And so they wrote as they thought back, and I could imagine that at times that when they were writing the Gospels, Mark would sit with some of the others that were at the same event that he was at, and, and they would sort of compare notes and say, remember it happened this way, and the one would say, I don't quite remember it like that, I remember it, and, and so they would get eyewitness accounts together and make sure that it's proper and right, and then under the inspiration of the Spirit, they, they would record these things, and, and here today we read the stories. Now John, for instance, writes to us, in, and he says, there were so many stories. 
stories and miracles that they could have written in the Scripture, that they would fill books with it. There's not enough space. But they've, they've, they've chosen a few specific ones that would point us to Christ and help us to understand who He really was. And so Mark did that in his Gospels. He wrote particular miracles and chose, selected some miracles to, con- to give us the argument of the power and the authority of the Lordship and the, God, the, the divinity of Christ. In some of the stories, he convinced us that Jesus had authority over nature. So when the gospel writers, for instance, talk about Jesus walking on, on water, when Jesus turned the, the water into wine, they're they making an argument to say that because if he's God, then he must have power over nature. And they're just telling us stories. They say, look, if you read these stories, you'll recognize that Jesus had power over nature. Therefore, it's very likely that he was God. Not only did he have power over nature, they'll tell you stories about how, and they recorded stories about how he had power over sickness, how he healed people of the most amazing sicknesses, things in those days that they had no answers for, Jesus could heal. So he's he's the Lord over sickness. He has authority over sickness. Therefore, he's possibly God. Jesus had authority over resources. Think of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 where there wasn't enough and then Jesus prayed and suddenly everybody had more than enough. He was, he was the Lord over the resources of this earth. He could multiply. Therefore, he must be God. Jesus had authority over relationships. He brought restoration. Jesus had authority over, over government. He had all sorts of authority in every one of the stories of the gospel. It tells us and it's building this, this argument that from different points, you, you've got to come to this conclusion. Today, we're going to read a particular story that is very important. As Mark records for us that Jesus didn't only have authority over nature, over resources, over sickness. He didn't even have just authority over spiritual things. They record sometimes when Jesus drove out demons, he has spiritual authority over the spiritual realm. But Jesus had authority over death. Now, if you wanted to convince somebody that, if I wanted to convince you this morning that Gerben is God, which I'm not going to do, it's not true at all, but I would have to lay the case for you about all the things that he's done that, that moves us from This is just a great guy to, wow, perhaps there's more. Then one of the things you'd have to have on your CV to claim that you are God is you have power over death. Because if you don't have power over death, you cannot be God. Then there's authority higher than you. And death is probably the top of the tree in terms of authority when it comes to our human experience. It's the, the thing that where we feel the most that we have no authority and no power over it. There's nothing we can do. When somebody dies, they die. It's, it's over. And therefore, in human history, there's always this quest to see, can, can we have a way to overcome the power of death, the finality of it? But if you're God, you must have power over death. So Mark records for us a great story. One of the occasions, there's many in the Gospels. Even in Jesus' own life, he overcame death, where Jesus had authority over even death. And if you believe this story, then you have to sit up and go, he must be God. He's not a great teacher. He's not a wonderful person. There's more to him. He's God. So let's read the story in Mark chapter 5. It's the very well-known story of Jairus and his daughter. 
So what happened was Jesus was busy ministering, and he was ministering on the, on the Galilean side of the lake, and, and, and crowds follow him, and, and it was going great and everything, and at some point he withdrew, went onto the water, and they went over to the other side. And so they get to the town of Capernaum side of the lake, and as they get off the, off the boat onto the shore, we pick up the story. When Jesus had again crossed over, sorry, verse 21, if you're following in your own Bible, you can look at the screens also. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. This man was going through a personal crisis in his family. So we read the story, we don't. It doesn't seem like she's had a long illness. It seems like suddenly something happened and she was in trouble. Now, the scripture says he was a synagogue leader. Let me just quickly help you. I, I didn't know what that meant, so I went and read up about it. What that means is every average Jewish town of the time, like Capernaum was, had a, a community leadership set up. And uh, their, their leadership was based around the synagogue. They didn't have a town hall or a, you know, a, a city hall or some place where the government, the, the government was seated in the synagogue. So the, the, the synagogue leaders were also the community leaders of the day, that sort of their leadership structure. Every average Jewish town would have seven people that would be on the synagogue leadership team. And those seven people would be the highest community authority in the town in terms of the Jewish uh, communities. Of those seven, there would be three that would be called the rulers of the synagogue. Three people that were normally charged with also looking after the synagogue itself. The synagogue was a building. It required maintenance. It required scheduling. It required people to know how to use it. And it became the gathering place for the community, both for worship and for other events. And therefore, they had people. Often, uh, these were more wealthy people that were like patrons of the synagogue and would support the synagogue financially. And these guys would look after the synagogue also. Now, Jairus was one of those three. He was one of these guys that, that had the responsibility, for instance, on a Sabbath day when the, when the service was being prepared, he would be on the service coordination team. He would actually head up that team, and he would plan the order of service for the synagogue, and he would actually assign who would do the homily. That was his job. So he was a well-known, well-respected person in his community. His daughter fell ill, gravely ill. So their family come into term with, with this verdict and this, this event that they see. Daughter is in bed. She's slipping away. They're going to lose her. Then he hears Jesus is coming to town. Because it seems that the news got to the town before because it says when Jesus landed at the shore, the crowd was already there. I don't know if Jairus was there at that point or did he make his way, but, but he heard Jesus is coming to town. So not only now does he face this news of the death of his daughter, but hope starts kindling within him and he feels perhaps this guy, I've heard the stories about the miracles and I, I, I've seen and perhaps that I, can, I can go and he can do something. So he makes his way to, to Jesus and, he, and he's in the crowd there and it's lots of people and they're pushing and it's a throng. And, and you know, in those, in those societies, they, they didn't have culture like we do where we stand in rows. It was, you get there first, you get helped. They were pushing and, and shoving and trying to get to Jesus and the disciples were doing crowd control as it seems that they often had to do. Now, Mark records this for us because he's telling us a story. He's saying, Jesus was somebody special. When the crowds heard he was in the area, they all came to him. Just take note of him. So Jairus is there in the crowd. And eventually, he finds a way to get Jesus' attention. 
And the scripture says, Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her that so she will be healed and live. And then the scripture says, So Jesus went with him. In amongst all the crowds, the busyness, the craziness, he got it right. Perhaps he played the I'm an important person card with the disciple. He got to Thomas and he said, listen, I need to speak to Jesus. Thomas said, look, everybody wants to speak to Jesus. I am the uh, ruler of the synagogue. Oh, okay. Perhaps we should put you in the front of the throng. I don't know what he did, but somehow he got to Jesus. And Jesus said, I'll go with you. Now, I think what Jesus obviously knew what was going on, and he was using this opportunity. So he said, I'll go with you to your house. So Jairus is feeling hope. Not only is Jesus in town, not only did he get Jesus' attention, but he actually convinced Jesus to come home with him. There's hope. His daughter may live. Wow, what a wonderful occasion. But Then we read the story. Oh, let me just, before we carry on reading. As they're traveling now from where they were at the lake to the house of Jairus, and the crowds are thronging. We read the story in between. We're sandwiched in between these two parts of the story of Jairus' daughter. The woman with the issue of blood comes. And she pushes in that crowd. And eventually pushes her way through. And, and do, does something that was completely unallowed for her as, a, as an unclean woman with an issue of blood. She reaches out. She touches the hem of the garment of Jesus. He stops immediately. says, who touched me? The disciples go, oh, what's wrong with you? Everybody's touching you. And he says... Who touched? And, and immediately she was healed and he felt the power go. Now, we're not going to have to focus on that story, but just that so you know, that happened on the way to Jairus' house. So it's amazing. Jairus' faith now starts rising up. I mean, this woman just got healed. My daughter is going to get healed. She's going to be well. They travel on. Some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? What a roller coaster ride. Despair, my daughter is ill. Hope, Jesus is in town. Hope, even more hope, Jesus is coming to my house. Even more hope, somebody's gotten healed on the way. This is a miracle day. Your daughter is dead. Don't bother Jesus anymore. From the heights of hope, come crashing down to the despair of loss of life. Have you been on a roller coaster ride like that? As pastors, we so often sit with people. I recently sat with a friend as she was dying. And through that period of time, a couple of weeks, you go through the roller coaster ride. Today's a good day. She's looking better. She's feeling good. Tomorrow's a bad day. She's feeling so terrible. Perhaps this is the end. Call the family. Let's say goodbye. No, tomorrow she's great. It's a good day. Perhaps there's hope. And you go through that roller coaster ride. That's part of our human experience. It's not only when we face death and perhaps a verdict of, of illness and death, but so often in our lives, this is that we, we, we go through this ups and downs. Because as human beings, we're so tied to the external things of our environment and the external experiences. We go through this. Jairus was going through this up and down. But now it seems like it's done. It's over. The story is ending. The daughter is dead. The only appropriate response is to mourn. 
and to make burial arrangements. That's it. It's gone. Why bother the teacher anymore? There's many people that need Jesus. There's many people. Don't waste Jesus' time. Your, your chance is over. There's no thing, nothing more he can do for you. Let him give attention to the others where he can actually still do something for them. That was the story. That was the message. But overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. What a statement to make to a father that just heard your daughter is dead. Don't be afraid. I don't know about you, but fear is such a natural response to me. It is so easy when I get news of any number of kinds of events that could happen in my life that fear just jumps up. Most of the time, I don't even have to decide to be afraid. It just happens. It just happens. Last night, our alarm went off and our perimeter fence and, and uh, immediately you go, something's wrong. You don't choose it. It's just fear. Or you get an account or you, you get a, a news from work or they're retrenching or whatever it is. And, and we don't sit down and think, this is an appropriate time to be afraid. <laughs> it just happens. Just fear is such a part of our human story. It just comes at us from every direction, all the time. Jesus says to this father who, according to our perspective, has every reason to be overwhelmed by fear and the loss of life. Has every reason. None of us would hold it against him. Every one of us would, would just change our attitude right there and sit with this father and say, we're so sorry. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Just believe. How's your heart doing? Do you feel fear knocking at your door? I know sometimes people say, the Bible says 365 times, don't be afraid, one for every day. Now, just to save you the embarrassment of being wrong, don't repeat that, it's not true. In the context of this kind of don't be afraid, even if you're feeling everything is going against you, don't be afraid. The Bible says it about 30 times. If you include some other context, it's about 80 times. But the Bible does say it a lot. Jesus said it a lot to people. Don't be afraid. Because he knows us. It's so easy for us to be afraid. I'm quite convinced that right here where we're sitting, we're all experiencing fear. In some place or another in our lives, there's fear that wants to find its way into our hearts. Sometimes you don't even know it's there. You don't even know that it's growing. It's like some insidious thing that's growing in, in, in your heart and you don't know it's there. Until something happens and you react in a way and then suddenly you realize, but fear has been taking hold of my life. Or perhaps you know it and you're caught in its clutches and you're just feeling fear. It may be that every time you hear the petrol price is going up, that fear comes. You didn't get an increase. Or you're stuck in a, in, a, in, a, in a situation, in a job where there's no real opportunities. And you don't, have, you don't foresee that things are going to get better. But the prices just keep coming. And you're already struggling to make ends meet. And, and you feel, where am I going to get more money from? And fear rises. 
Perhaps you get a diagnosis. Fear rises. Or a, a family member that's doing some crazy thing and, or a child that you're concerned about or a parent or a relationship that's falling apart or whatever it may be. I, we can talk at so long about any places where fear just comes. And, and I don't know, how's your heart doing today? But are you feeling fear rise up within you? And perhaps you, if you, I heard your story today, as a human being, I could sit with you and say, you should be afraid. It's real. Here's one of the most fearful situations, Jesus says. Don't be afraid. Let's carry on. Let's go to your home. Why would you go to my home? Jairus didn't connect with Jesus because he wanted Jesus to come and mourn with him. He didn't need Jesus to come and sit with him and just drink tea with him. He needed a miracle. But the time has passed. It's gone. Jesus, you may as well go somewhere else. But Jesus has a bit of a different perspective. He says, no, it's, there's, still, there's still a reason for me to go to your house. Let's go. I don't know what that last bit of travel must have been like in the heart of Jairus. Why is he coming to my house? He's coming to terms with the fact that his daughter's died. Now he's got to take care of Jesus also at the same time. What's his wife? How is this? He, he's just going through this turmoil. But he follows on with Jesus. We read further. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Jesus says to most of the disciples, you stay behind. You keep the rest of the crowd back here. I'll, I'll come back. But just the three of them, just come with me, the closest ones. He says, just you guys come with me. We're going to go to his house. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? Now in the, the culture, and I know some of you from our cultures here in South Africa will understand this better, they had professional mourners, <laughs> criers, people that would come and hear there's a death. And when they heard somebody was on their deathbed, they start gathering around the house, waiting for their moment. Because when there's death, the appropriate response is mourning. It's wailing. And in that culture, they would really do it well. I mean, they would tear their clothes. They would throw ash and dust on their heads. And so Jesus steps in and there is a commotion. It's crying. It's mourning. A young girl, we know later it says she's 12 years old. What a tragedy. What a loss. Uh, it's, this is a community leader. This is somebody important. The whole community is feeling the loss. The appropriate, correct response is, we cry and we mourn. And Jesus says, what's going on? Why are you crying like this? What a question. The crowd responds, and then Jesus says to them, the child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. Suddenly their mourning turns to laughter. I think what they were busy saying is, is this the guy we've been hearing about? Is this the guy that everybody tells us is the Messiah possibly? Is this the great miracle worker? Is this the guy that we should be interested in? He doesn't even understand the basics of life. Death, mourning. What is he on about? They're sort of going, ah, he's some kind of a fool. He's just, what? He's completely irrelevant in this situation. Doesn't he understand? And then Jesus says, but she's only asleep. Your response would be appropriate if death was the final word. 
But from Jesus' perspective, she was asleep. He wasn't being funny. He wasn't being cute. He wasn't trying to minimize the situation. He was just saying what he saw. Because he knows that death is not the final word. He knows, first of all, that death is never the final word in the life of any human being. We are all just going to go to sleep one day. But life continues after death. He could say this if Jesus came to your funeral. He would say to your family, it's not over. No matter who you are, no matter what kind of life you lived, it is never done. And that's one of the key things we believe as Christians because we believe in God and that's what Jesus was saying. From his perspective, he's seen the bigger story. This is not the end. She's just asleep. She's just going through a transition. But also from his perspective, he knew what was going to happen, that she is only asleep for a moment, but just now she's going to wake up. She's going to be risen from the dead. So Jesus chases everybody out the room. He just keeps the three disciples and the mothers, the wailers and the criers. He says, I don't need you now. You, you, you fixated on death. You think you only see death. You only see that this is the end. It's not the right place for you. Please leave. And, and he spends time with just the small group of people. They go into the room. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talita kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Get up. Every, yeah, come on, let's give the Lord an applause. I mean, get up. Every single human being that has ever lived, that is living, and that will ever live, will die. But as sure as their death will come, there will come a day when, some, when Jesus will say, get up. Get up off your bed of worms. Get up off the dirt. Get up off the ashes. Get up. Life is continuing. In actual fact, you are really starting to live now. Death is not the end. Get up. Do you believe that? Do you know that? That is why Paul writes to the Thessalonians and he says to them, don't mourn like the unbelievers because this is not the end. You are going to see them again. Now obviously God's plan is that seeing again is going to be a great event in heaven, living life eternally with him. But God is going to say to every person, get up, get up. But in this specific situation, he says to this girl, get up. And this 12-year-old girl that just died gets up immediately. Immediately, the scripture says. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let any, anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Mark is saying to us that if he has authority over death, then he is the son of God. And you need to respond appropriately to him. He is the son of God. Death has no power over him. And Jesus proved it in himself by raising from, by, by standing up out of his deathbed. But here he says, I have power over death. Get up. What he's actually saying and why Mark records this story as part of it is if Jesus is God, then nothing is beyond his reach. There's always more 
There are always more options. There's no final word. If it is not God's word, it is not final. In Jesus, there are always more possibilities. As a believer in Christ, God's word is final. Nothing else is final. Nothing else. If Jesus is in the picture, there's always hope. There's always another possibility. Because when your daughter lies on her deathbed and she dies, the only possibility is arranging a funeral. But if you put Jesus in that room, there are other options that suddenly become possible. Now, I know that we pray for many people. I've prayed for many people in my life. I've been to the morgue and actually stood with persons that are dead and have prayed for them and said, Lord, will you raise them from the dead? Up until this day, it's not happened. I'm not going to stop trying, but it's not happened. But it does, it's okay. Because I know that person is going to get up. They are going to spend eternity. It's not a failure that if we pray for them. And I know we often sit with families, like I've sat with many families. And you sit and you pray and you say, Lord, will you heal this loved one? And sometimes God does. But sometimes they don't get healed. But every one of them will live. Every one of them will live for eternity. If you've lost a loved one, if you've suffered this tragic loss, mourn, feel the, the loss, feel the pain. It is right and appropriate. But know, when God is there, there's hope. But there's a bigger point that he's trying to make to us here. And that is the point that he is God. He is God and all things are possible with him. All things. I want to remind you later on, Mark writes in 11, Mark 11 verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if any one of you says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart but believe that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Then he carries on and he says, therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. What an amazing statement to make. Jesus is saying to you, you will move mountains. What does that mean? You will do the impossible. You. The issue is not just can Jesus move mountains. The issue is can you move mountains. Now that becomes a bit of a different story. The context of Jesus saying this was a couple of days before Jesus said that they were walking on a road and there was a fig tree next to the road and the fig tree didn't have fruit. So Jesus cursed the fig tree. And a few days later, they're coming back past that same fig tree and Peter notices the fig tree is dead. It's shriveled up. It's completely dead. And he says to Jesus, hey, look, the fruit tree is dead. The fig tree is dead. It's then that Jesus says, if you believe, even mountains will move. What is Jesus saying? The fig tree is, an ex is, a, is a symbol of the old covenant, the law. And the law represented the obstacle that was between us and God, that we couldn't get to God because of the law of sin and death. And Jesus cursed the fig tree and he said, this obstacle I will remove. You will have access to the Father. So now they're coming back past the fig tree and they notice the fig tree. Jesus says, not only will this obstacle be moved, but any obstacle will be moved. Nothing will keep you from God's will. Nothing will keep you from where God wants you to do. Even if it is a mountain, and he points to the Mount of Olives, even this mountain must move. Nothing will keep you from God's plan. 
but you must believe. And you will move mountains. I find it fascinating that that language says, you will move mountains. So God puts a responsibility and expectation on you and me, little old you and me, to move mountains. I've asked was Sean and William to be my illustrators this morning. We have prayed and we have heard from the Lord. God's will is that those two pillars must move. Don't get nervous. We're in God's hands. So by faith, our two strong men are going to stand and move these two pillars. Can you see them? There they go. The Bible says, Sean, William, the Bible says, if you have faith, you will move mountains. So what are two small pillars? And even if they, when they move the pillars, the angels will keep the roof up. Roof up. So don't get concerned. It's no problem. We in God's hands, it's, everything's fine. So can we, can, we, can we say, guys, move those pillars. Move them, come on. Push, guys, come on. You know, we can do it. The Bible says you will move mountains. Come on, these are just two small pillars. Move them. Put some more effort. Put your backs into it, man. Come on. Don't disappoint me. God said we must move the pillars. How many of you here have faith that if these guys just keep going, they're going to move these pillars? Anybody? Want to put their hands with a delusional? I don't think we're going to get this right. How many of you think if we get some bigger, stronger guys? Just stay there, guys. Don't leave. Your job's not finished. William, stay there. The, the, God said the pillars must move, guys. We're not finished until they've moved. How many of you think if we get some stronger guys in here, they'll, they'll do it? Any, any other guys think you can do it? You want to sign up for the job? Some muscle men? Come on. But God said they must move the pillars, but we know they can't move the pillar. How's that possible? How does that work? Okay, so perhaps it's a thing of faith. Perhaps they mustn't try in the physical to move the pillars, but they must just stand there and in faith look at that pillar and say, move. Now forgive me, I don't want to be irreverent in any way, but in the name of Jesus, pillar, move. Shall we try that? Come on, Sean, come on, William, pray. Speak to those pillars in faith. It's not by strength, it's not by power, it's by the faith you will move. Jesus said, if you have faith, you will move these pillars. Come on, guys, can we put our faith with them this morning? Can we as a community trust and say, these pillars are gonna move? How many of you think if we have faith, the pillars will move? Woo, you're dangerous, uh, you're dangerous. Now, the point is that I'm trying to make, Sean and William will not move those pillars. Not by strength and not by faith, unless God wants to move the pillar. Amen? So if God said, if it is God's will, because Jesus said, whatever you ask, I'll do for you. But Jesus wasn't saying, you can be the boss and I'll just run around and be your butler. That's not what faith is. Faith is God saying, in the context of my will and what is, what, because he's God, he's sovereign, he's the final authority, but I'm inviting you to come in. You must do the work of faith, the asking, and I will do what we have together come to accomplish. But God is actually saying, I've chosen to do it with you. How many of you know God can move those two pillars if he wanted to? For some other reason, if God decided to move the pillars, they can move. How many of you believe that? Come on, let's hold up your hands. 
Do you believe that? So why does Jesus say, William and Sean must move the pillar? But we can't do it. Only he can do it. What's our role in this? It almost feels like God is saying, I can do this, but I'm going to come down and involve you. And then we all start feeling, but now suddenly what was possible becomes impossible. Just because we've added the two of them. And I could take any of us and put us in that illustration. How does that work? Now, if God wants the pillar to be moved, he has chosen to say, I will move that pillar through you. It's his power that will move the pillar. It's not my power. It's not even my faith. It's his power. But what my faith does is it connects me into that situation. And in God's wisdom and in his planning, he decided to say, I will move pillars through you. In some situations, I'm not clever enough to say in all situations, but in many situations, God says, if you don't move the pillar, I'm not going to move it. I can, but I'm not going to do it. I want it to be moved, but I'm not going to do it because you and I, we are in this together. You are my children. You are part of my kingdom. You are my, my representatives on earth. You need to move the pillar. Now, how do they move the pillar? If God said move the pillar, what is their job? I'd like you guys to lean in and try and push those pillows, pillars over and stay pushing. Come on, guys. Push them. Now, you and I know no longer, as, it doesn't matter how long they push, how hard they push, they will never move the pillar. But do you also know that the moment they stop pushing, that's the moment that pillar will never move. But if they keep pushing, there comes a moment when God says, my will is now going to happen. And then that pillar will move. <laughs> then that pillar will shake. Not because they pushed it, but because they stayed in faith and engaged. Thank you. Why don't you give our two strong men, our Samsons. We're so glad you weren't that strong that the roof came down and, you know. I chose the two more skinnier guys that I could find just. <laughs> it's a compliment. compliment, yes, it's meant as a compliment. What are, what are the mountains in your life? Because you know every one of us has mountains. Not just the mountains that happen to come across our path, but mountains designed for you. Because you are God's child. You are God's servant. And he wants to move mountains in this world. In our city, in our nation, there's mountains that God needs to move. And he has said, you must move that mountain. What are your mountains? What are the things in your life that you feel, I'm, I'm just going to stop pushing it. It's not worth it. It's not moving. It, in fact, it looks like it's just becoming stronger and stronger. Because the, the, I don't know if you've done that. The longer you push against something, the weaker you feel, the stronger the thing feels that you're pushing against and we feel like that in faith. We just want to disengage at some point and say, but the moment we do that, that's the moment that pillar will not move. It doesn't have an option anymore because Jesus said, you must move the pillar. Now, I'm not talking about our fanciful imaginations if we think pillars should move. I'm really talking about God's word and there's process and all of that. But each of us, each of us are called to stand in faith and move pillars. Your pillar may be that you're standing for God's kingdom to come in your workplace, in your family, in your suburb, in your community, in your, 
in your family's life. Your, your, it may be that your pillar is something to do with illness. It, it may be financial. It may be a number of things. Anything that you can put the word fear next to, that can be a mountain. Anything that gives you reason to fear, that can be a mountain. But Jesus says to you, fear not, believe. I wonder what would have happened if that moment when they came to Jairus and said, your daughter is dead, don't bother the master anymore. If Jairus just said, okay, that's it, I'm done. Jesus, you don't have to come with me anymore. Probably that meant she would not have been healed. Because he gave up. But he stayed in the situation. What is God calling you to stay in? That you say, I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't see the possibilities. I don't see the options. But I know you do, Lord. And because I believe in you, I'm going to stay committed beyond what I see. Until I see what you see, I'm going to stay. I want you to stand with me. My job this morning was to stir your faith, and I hope I'm doing that. I'm sorry if I'm not able to stir your faith, but watch the message again. You and I can move mountains. And I mean that. Jesus meant it. He said, you will do the impossible. I want you to close your eyes. Holy Spirit, I pray that right now you will give us awareness of anything in our lives that is either become the impossible that we put in the category of it's not possible. Not just willy-nilly things, but things that we feel it is what God wants, but we think it's impossible. Or things that is growing into that category that we've, that we've struggled with and we're starting to feel like it's impossible. Allow the Spirit of God to just show you. It may be in your personal life. It may be in our nation that you're starting to feel it's impossible. It may be that even in our church context here, we're starting to say certain things aren't possible. It may be in somebody else's life, but anything that you feel, I'm starting to feel like this. I know God wants it. I know it's God's will, but it's impossible. And I'd like you by the Spirit of God to see those two little letters, I and M, possible, changed into I am possible. Not I am as in me, but because of He. But because He is possible, it is possible for me. It's possible. It may not happen today. It may not happen tomorrow. You know, in Hebrews 11, it says that some of the heroes of the faith died, and they never saw to come to pass what God promised. But if they didn't keep trusting, it wouldn't have happened even in the life after them. We stand in faith. Paul says, when you've done all to stand, you stand. God can do it. Nothing is impossible with him. Do you believe that to the point where you will say, I will stay, come to my house, Jesus. Even when it seems that the options have run out, the daughter is dead, come to my house. Come, Lord Jesus. I want to go the distance with you. Lord, I pray right now, in Jesus' name. I pray, Father, that you would help us. That fear, though it's so natural for us, will not determine our lives in Jesus' name. But that faith will arise. 
faith will arise within us. Give us the strength, the ability to have faith when there's reason to fear. To stand, to trust, to move mountains. In our personal lives, Lord, we see mountains move. Because you can move mountains. In our nation, we see mountains move, Lord. Mountains move in Jesus' name. But Lord, this is our commitment. We will keep pushing. We will not sit down. We will not give up. But we will hold on until what you have said comes to pass. We believe it. We're convinced today that if you said it, it will happen. And therefore, we will keep at it. That is what faith is, Lord. So this morning, I pray for every single individual person that's standing here, and I pray for you today. Let faith arise in your hearts. Faith arise so that you can move your mountains in Jesus' name. May the Lord bless you. May you experience His presence this week. May, you, may it be so real to you that when you hear that news and faith arises, that you can actually say, fear not, but let's believe. The Lord bless you. Amen. Let us pray with you this morning. Our pastors, our elders, our teams are here. If you want to come, right now will be a great opportunity to say there's something in my life. Stand with me. Let's move this mountain. And we will pray with you. If you want to know more about what it means to be a follower of Christ and to be a Christian and to be a, a person that loves Jesus and experiences Him in your life, then come and let us pray with you also. We'll have baptism at the function hall. If you want to get baptized, please go and join us for that. It'll be our honor to serve you in any way we can.